0: Welcome to Cars Yeah! Show number 72. This is Cars Yeah! Where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah! Do you love vintage cars? Then go to CarsYa.com and get a free copy of the fantastic Filler Up book. It's a full-color ebook filled with fuel filler fun with over 60 color photographs of vintage cars plus inspirational quotes from some of the most famous automotive enthusiasts of all time. Simply go to CarsYeah.com, click on the free book button on the homepage, and download your Filler Up book today. It's free at CarsYeah.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today I'm extremely excited to introduce my very special guest, Michael Furman. Michael, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride?
1: I guess I am, Mark. I, I will tell you, I'm not a great passenger, <laughs> so don't be surprised if I ask you to stop so I can hang out the window and or go to the bathroom or something. <laughs> okay. But I promise not to ask to drive.
0: Okay. Well, uh, we can both share the wheel. As a young boy, Michael Furman first picked up a camera to photograph a 1963 Corvette split-window coupe and thus began a lifelong love affair with cars and cameras. Throughout his 40-year professional career as a photographer, Michael has had the pleasure to work with the world's most significant cars and collectors. In 2003, Michael's efforts turned from commercial projects for manufacturers to editorial with his first two books, Motor Cars of the Classic Era and Automobiles of the Chrome Age. 1946 to 1960. These photographic essays are unique to the publishing world in that they celebrate the beauty and history of the world's most iconic cars in studio imagery. Many books projects have followed and Michael felt the need to control the content so he started his own publishing company Coach Built Press. This changed his professional life and opened a whole new world of adventure And since then, he's published many outstanding automotive books, including three new books this year. And I'm proud to say almost every one of them is on my shelf, but I'll have to get my hands on these new books. I
1: can can arrange that for you, Mark. I'm
0: sure you can. (laughs) And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Michael's immersion into the collector car world is evident by his presence at many of the major Concours events around the world as a featured artist, an author, a judge, and a sponsor. So, Michael, I've told our listeners a little about you, so take some time and share some more about your history, your career, your interests, and of course, your passion for automobiles.
1: Well, Mark, first of all, thank you for having me on. I came to the car world probably from a little bit different direction than most people. Growing up in Philadelphia, we do not have the kind of car culture like you would see on the West Coast, where everybody worked on a car with their dad, or everybody had a hot rod, or I know people whose fathers gave them cars to work on so they wouldn't be out running around and doing things. But in my case, my father loved cars but had no ability to work on them, and he kind of passed that lack of mechanical knowledge on to me. I can clean a pretty good car, and I can take a nice picture, but other than that, I have no clue as to what's going on. (laughs) I came to cars in in the sense that I have today when I picked up a camera to photograph a car as a... 12 year old boy. I didn't realize at the time where that would lead. Most people pick up a camera usually to get associated with a subject matter. And I think that's why a lot of young men like to photograph naked women. But uh, (laughs) in my case, they're naked cars, I guess. I haven't had the pleasure of shooting naked women. I'm I'm embarrassed to say. I picked up a camera to photograph a car, and I very quickly became enamored with photography and particularly light. For whatever reason, that split-windowed coupe triggered all of that, and I spent all of my teenage years in the darkroom. I spent every waking moment with a camera around me, and more importantly, I spent every moment looking at light. When I eventually became a professional photographer about 10 years later, came back to Philadelphia from going to college in Rochester, and I opened my own studio Because I was used to lighting things and working indoors, I was a studio still life photographer. A lot of the work here in Philadelphia was based on the pharmaceutical industry, corporate work. There was other projects for people on a national basis. But one day, I said to myself, I really enjoy what I do, and I find everything interesting. I'm never bored. But wouldn't it be neat to photograph something that I had more of an interest in? Cars came to mind. And I immediately started borrowing cars, bringing them into a makeshift studio so I could photograph them. And that's sort of what got me started. I must admit, it was about 20 years ago, I finally got a Corvette split-windowed coupe in the studio. (laughs) So that was, was it about a 30-year, took 30 years for that to happen? Wow. (laughs) By that time, I would shot a fair number of cars in the studio, and I would asked my assistants to leave me alone with the car. I said, I think the car and I need to talk. (laughs) And I pulled up a chair, and I was talking to the car, and I said, what did you get me into here? Oh, my goodness. As I asked the question, the answer was fairly obvious. I've had a wonderful, wonderful time doing a lot of very, very interesting things. And since then, it has gotten much more wonderful and much more interesting. We pretty much left the manufacturing world, you know, working for the factories and all, and instead shoot almost exclusively collector cars, coach-built cars, one-off cars, race cars, uh, things of that nature. So we're always sort of working on editorial projects where I have a lot of creative control and freedom, and we're not answering to people as to how the doorknobs have to look or, you know, can you tell this color precisely, Uh, we're not answering to the kind of issues that a manufacturer would demand. So it's made it a little less stressful and a lot more interesting because it allows us to really explore things in a manner that we feel is appropriate.
0: You know what's amazing and wonderful about your story? There are so many photographers out there and people that love photography and would like to make a living at it, but they have to subsidize that passion by shooting things that aren't that interesting for them, perhaps, like you said, in the commercial world. But you've been able to transition and pivot your business to combine those two passions of cars and photography, and as you said, the freedom to do it yourself. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your decision process to become a publisher of your books, because I'll tell the listeners now, if you Google Michael Furman, you will get a taste for the incredible way he works with light. And of course, all photography is about light, but would you share with us, that process as an entrepreneur and a business person of deciding to publish your own books and what that really did for you?
1: Well, I think it goes back to my opening comment to you that I'm not a very good passenger. (laughs) And I think you'll find that at least a lot of the photographers I know, we're very much control freaks. We don't take direction all that well. We all think we have a better idea than anyone else has. Because of that, we don't respond well to when other people want us to do something that we don't feel is appropriate. And so throughout my professional career, I had no problem speaking up if I felt that we were going in the wrong direction with the idea of of an ad or something that we were working with. When it came time to doing the books, I felt I had worked long enough and I had gathered enough photographs that now might be a time to get into the editorial world. And when I first started showing my concepts to publishers the one thing that struck me was how much they said that, geez, no one has ever done this before, what you're trying to do. And I immediately took that as a compliment, which I shouldn't have, because then the other shoe dropped. And that is, well, if no one else has done it before, how do we know it's going to sell? (laughs) How do we know there's a market for it? And my immediate response was, if someone else had done it, there'd be no real reason for me to do it, because I don't believe in just doing what other people do. I think we we're all here to kind of broaden the uh, the experience the human experience. So with that in mind, I was able to at least get a publisher to contract me for a four book series after we did or while we're in the middle of the second book, I should say. The publisher was sold and because that delayed the timeline, that gave me the excuse to leave that contract cuz I could very clearly see that they were willing to accept things that I was not willing to accept. Mm. There were issues with, um, with printing. There were issues with marketing. They didn't seem to have the same level of care that I have. And when I go to reproduce something, I feel that I have obligations to a number of people. Number one, I have an obligation to that car. I'm fortunate enough to maybe be the only one to shoot that car. And as such, what I see in that car and what I present to people may be all that they ever see. So that's a great responsibility, and I feel that I have to take that very sincerely. I have a great responsibility to the owner of the car because I have already told them what I'm going to do, and they have an expectation of the highest quality. And third, and not necessarily the least important and possibly the most important, is I have an obligation to the audience they want to see the best that I can give them. And I have an obligation with all three aspects to do the best I can. And what I found was with working with other publishers, that was not the issue. They felt that anything I could do to cut the cost of the production down so that more money could be made was their driving goal. I've even said to people that if the publisher could print money directly
2: <laughs> and
1: not have to do a book and not have to worry about distribution and inventory, they would prefer just to print money. Sure. So you may think that a lot of the book publishers have a lot of editorial integrity, even if it's a big-name publisher. In fact, they're businesses like everyone else, and they're just trying to make money. I however, kind of approach things the opposite way, and that is the hell oh, with the money, let's do it the right way and I've always felt that if you do it the right way, the money will eventually follow.
0: A lot of things come to mind as you share this story. one of them is you operate like one of the finer restoration shops. They do it the right way no matter what it takes. And I love that part of what you're sharing with us. Really great. As we continue on your journey, Michael, I'd like you to share a success quote with us, a saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Michael, I'm going to let you
1: take the wheel. Well, the thing that I like to tell people is that, first of all, I love riding a bicycle. To amend my story a little bit, when I started looking for things that interested me, I really wanted to get involved in the cycling world. And this was long enough ago that cycling isn't what it is today. And I got very much involved with it in a number of different levels. But there was absolutely no money in the world of cycling. It was truly mom and pop. And a lot of the big manufacturers that exist today were one-man shops 30-some years ago. But I can still say that I I moved from there into cars, but I still ride my bike a lot. And at some point, when you, I'm sure you're going to ask me what my favorite car is. I'm going to tell you it's a bicycle. (laughs) But what I like to tell people is everything I've learned in life, I've learned on my bike. Because you're out there riding along and your mind is somewhat clear and you're enjoying yourself. And when you get into that kind of a state, you really start thinking about things and you see things more clearly than when you're in your normal stressful environment and one thing i noticed i'll tell this as a quick story and that is i was riding on my mountain bike near my house and there was one real steep rocky section i could never get up the other side and as i was struggling to get up the other side i would do my best to make sure that i could uh, put a foot down before falling over onto these very hard and nasty looking rocks and one day after I pulled off and I'm standing on the side, once again upset that I didn't get up this little hill, I saw this other guy come by who was much bigger and heavier than me. And usually weight is a real, real problem in going up hills. But this guy went up the hill like a gazelle. Mm-hmm. And when I watched him, I said to myself, he didn't look for a place to put his foot down to save himself. He looked for a way of going up. Mm. He never looked down. So I said, okay, I'm going to try this. So I went back to the beginning, and I went down the first part of the hill, and as I came up, I looked straight ahead, and I said, what am I going to do to keep going? Not only did I get up the hill, but I never, ever had that problem again. (laughs) And I've kind of taken that little lesson and kind of applied it to how I approach my business. Too many people look, as, you know, look at a situation decide that it's not going to be successful and figure out how can I get out of this with the least amount of damage, whereas my opinion is you persevere and you make something valuable. I've said this many times. Clients don't call me so I can prove to them it can't be done. They call me with the expectation of things getting accomplished. I'm quite honored by that thought that they think I can do something. Yes, we may not be able to do exactly what they had in mind, but we will always, I think, exceed their expectations because they don't really know what the possibilities are. I'd have to say persevering is the most important thing, and it's something that has kept me going all these years.
0: It's a a great attribute and a sense of how to go through life, and I've heard that from many of my guests, is perseverance is so key, and it definitely for an entrepreneur with all the ups and downs Mm -hmm. that entrepreneurs face. Will you share with us a story that instigated your passion for cars? If you could tell us about that pivotal moment in your life when you really knew you were a car guy.
1: Well, it may even predate that split-window coupe. I mentioned my dad, who was... Always loved cars and trucks and things like that, anything that moved he loved it. Um, when we were kids, he had a mechanic a mechanic shop next to his business, and the guy stored fairly significant cars for the day. I mean there was a jag xk one twenty roadster I think there was a mercedes one hundred ninety SL and a few other cars, and he would allow my dad just to bring the cars home and he said, "Look, take the car, just exercise the car." And keep it as long as you like. I think the idea was is that if the car sat in my father's garage, he'd have more room in, in that garage to put other things. <laughs> yeah. But when he would bring a car home, my brother, I have a twin brother, he and I would sit in the car, and we were 10 years old. Uh, we would just sit in the car and make, you know, car noises. We'd go through the gears and everything and make all these engine sounds and stuff.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: I think that's what sort of did it. And the car that really stands out is that 190SL Mercedes.
2: Oh, nice.
1: It was just so beautifully made. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It just everything about it, just like, wow, this is right. <laughs> uh,
0: in so many and ways. And we were little,
1: so we fit in the boot pretty well.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Although we did live in fear of bumping the, the gearshift lever out. And because we did not have a clue as to what to do if we moved the lever, (laughs) we just imagined that our father would come out and be really upset that we broke the car. (laughs) Uh,
0: I think so. I think so. Great story, too, by the way. I love that. So, Michael, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and and really crawl under the hood and get our hands a little dirty. Would you Mm -hmm. share with us a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced in your career that perhaps pushed you to a breaking point, but more importantly, share with our listeners how you overcame that situation and what you really learned from it.
1: Well, I have to say one of the very first assignments I had with cars was shooting for a major manufacturer. They had called me in to work on their catalog, and considering I had only shot a handful of cars up until then, this was one of the most prestigious automotive assignments that a photographer could get. And I very quickly found out uh, I had a crash course, really, in shooting cars. We were shooting with 8 by 10 cameras. We were shooting outdoors. We were shooting in difficult situations. And considering I was a studio photographer, this was very foreign to me. But the art director on the project was lovely, and he was very, very understanding. And I think he felt that I was worth investing a little energy in. Nice. The problem was that the the agency and the client didn't get along. Mm. And I got caught in that crossfire. And we had shot for 14 days, 20 hours a day, and didn't take a day off.
2: Oh, my gosh.
1: We had nothing to show for it. At one point, the art director was called into the client's suite at the hotel we were staying in and was fired. And wow. the client had tried that early in the shoot, to which I went in and stood up for the art director because I felt he was at least going to help me get through this. He brought me to the dance, and he would get me through this. But uh, when the client went to fire him the second time, I walked in, and I don't know where I got the nerve to do this, but I said to the client, you folks have no interest in getting good work done, so I'm leaving with him." Wow. And I, I don't drink, but it's the only time I've ever gone out.
2: <laughs> <I've> gotten
1: loaded. <laughs> and we had a great time, I must admit. Yeah. I stood up for myself, which I think was very, very important. But during that whole two-week process, we didn't have one usable photograph. Oh, my gosh. And we never took a break. And I said we were working, getting four hours of sleep a night. And I have to tell you, after the third day, you're just wasting your time. Everybody's so tired, you're just going in circles. So I learned a lot on that shoot. And mainly because the art director was so nice, looking after me and giving me his insights, because he was extremely experienced. Mm-hmm. And that was my baptism into shooting cars professionally. Wow! And somehow, somehow I survived that.
0: And here you are today. You know, there's there's some wonderful golden nuggets in that lesson, especially for our listeners who are entrepreneurs or or new or young in business, or even have been around a while, and that is you were willing to fire your client. And sometimes you have to be willing to do that if it's just not working. I I worked as a creative director for many years, and then for many years directed many photo shoots. I understand the situation you were put in. It's very, very challenging and difficult. So a great lesson learned there. Michael, let's shift gears here and go to the whole other end of the spectrum I'd like you to share a story when you had a real aha moment about your career, time when you realized that an idea or a concept was really going to make it, and tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success.
1: Well, that really predates my automotive photography, and it goes back more to my very beginnings as a photographer. And I was working with a gentleman. I was very young, maybe 21, 22 years old. I started uh, right out of college and I was working with a gentleman who was much older, but again, a really first-class person who knew what he was doing. And it, he recognized something in me that he thought I should he should invest his time and energy in. And as we were working, we were doing a small still life. And at some point, he stopped me and said, Michael, I can't watch you do this anymore. You're taking forever to do this. I know where you're going to end up, and you don't. <laughs> and the thing is, you will end up there. I have every faith in the world that you will end up there. He said, I just don't want to waste the rest of my life watching you get there. He said, you need to know what you do and why you do it. And you don't start every photograph as a blank piece of paper. Just because there's nothing in front of the camera doesn't mean things are blank. You bring everything that you know to the party. Hmm. And I said... Well, this all sounds good in the abstract. Can you be a little more specific? And he described to me how I shoot things, how I arrange things, how I light things. And he was perfectly accurate. And he said, I watch you go down all these blind alleys. You know, you try this, you try that. And yet you always come back to the right place. He said, wouldn't it be interesting if you could avoid the blind alleys and go to the right place? And maybe instead of that being the end place, that's your starting point. Mm. Wow. So that was, my, that was truly an aha moment, and that was 39 years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday.
0: Ah, uh, isn't it great to have that it kind was just of guidance? It wonderful. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: not everybody gets somebody who's smart enough and patient enough to step up and say something like that. And as I started to continue to work for him, things got much better. Things moved along much more um, efficiently. I have to thank him for that.
0: And Let's have a little fun here. What was your first really special vehicle? And maybe you could share a memory you had with that car.
1: Well, the first vehicle that I had, I shared with my brother and sister, and it was my parents' 57-old station wagon. And my father bought it new, and when I was 16, I was now old enough to drive the car, which was now, I guess it was 12 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. The car was now 12. And back then in high school, everybody had their Mustangs and their Camaros. They would have all kinds of great stuff. And my brother and I are bombing around in this 12-year-old Oldsmobile in baby blue Mm
2: -hmm.
1: with 100,000 miles on it. We didn't really like the car or appreciate it until it became ours. Mm -hmm. And then once my father said, this is your car, oh my God, it was the best car in the world. (laughs) and we did everything we could to throw everybody in that car and use it for everything. And it was such a great car that many, many years later, uh, when my father retired from business, he got into collecting cars. Just, I, just right after he passed away, I found one. I found a 57-old station wagon. Oh. And my mother was still alive, and she would still talk about that car. And I said got to get my hands on one of these and give one to my mother, she would just, it would mean the world to her. And unfortunately, the car I had my eye on was sold before I could get to it because there are very few of these things running around. Unfortunately, she passed away, and I didn't get to give her the car. I still think that one of these days I will come back and find one and and, uh, and own it, which kind of proves the point that we all go back to the cars of our youth.
0: Yep. How about seller's remorse? Is there a vehicle that you've had in your past you really wish you could have back?
1: Do you want to hear this sad story? (laughs) Do you want to hear this awful, awful sad story? Sure. I'll try to make it as brief as possible. Okay. But I'm a Porsche person, and many years ago, more than 20, 25 years ago, I wanted to buy a Porsche Carrera RS. And at the time, there were only a handful in the U.S., and I was told by my various friends, you'll never find one. Now, they weren't anywhere near the value they are today. I was very fortunate, and I found an original car with low miles, and it was a factory lightweight, which was the most desirable combination. Oh, yeah. And the car was original. Mm. And did I say it had low miles?
0: Yeah. (laughs) And original. Yeah. This is getting sad already.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. It it checked off all the boxes. Yeah. And about eight years ago, when I decided to start the publishing company nine years ago, I sold the car in order to start the publishing company. Mm -hmm. And the car, as long as I owned it, was never quite worth what I paid for it. It was always worth a few dollars less. But as I went to sell it, it was worth as much as it had been worth when I owned it. And now they're selling for Uh, five or six times what I sold the car for. A lot. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, no, what I say, five or six times. I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) Ten times. Yeah. Oh, the story gets worse. I wasn't yeah.
0: going to say anything, but yeah, you're talking... Yeah, the
1: car <laughs> The most recent one I saw, which wasn't as nice as mine, sold for 10 times what I sold my car for. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well...
1: And it to make matters worse, Mark, it seems every collection we shoot has one.
0: Yep, yeah. They're pretty iconic. And, you know, but I always say this to people, is at the time, that was the right thing to do. And you can't look back. Mm-hmm. You just have to... Think of the fond memories and move forward because everybody has one of these stories. It's why I asked the question. Some people actually get their cars back. You just can't look back. So you can say I had yeah. one someday, but that's definitely... Well, I know my
1: serial number, Mark, so I'm keeping my eyes open
0: <laughs> okay. for it. Okay, you do that. And it's funny.
1: When my wife said, you know, you're one of these days the publishing company will be successful and you'll have enough money, you'll buy it back. There you go. There you go. Well, who'd have thought that the car would take off at price? Oh, I know. So it becomes an interesting story, and if nothing else, I can say that I'm very, very fortunate that I got to own the car, and I truly got to appreciate it, Yeah. which, in a larger sense, has made it much easier for for me to understand the various collectors that I work with. I can truly understand their obsessions
0: now. Oh, of course. Is there a current project that you're working on right now that really has you excited and fired up?
1: Well, we just finished a project. As a matter of fact, the book was just released last month at, at Pebble Beach, and that is called Porsche Unexpected. Mm. And the book is the story of the Ingram collection of Porsches. And it's not just the collection, uh, the story of the collection itself, the story of the cars, but it's also the story of the family and how they, you know, stumbled along and next thing you knew, they were interested in Porsches. And as the more interested they became, the closer they got as a family, the more they enjoyed the mark as a family, the more they got into it, and now they have probably the finest collection of road-going Porsches in the world.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and... And, Well, their son Cam, too, has a Road Scholars, a company mm -hmm. where they restore vehicles and present them and uh, take care of them and sell them and buy them. Uh, So, a fantastic collection. But when the
1: story started, Mark... Cam was the college student as a metal uh, sculptor. Mm.
0: Oh, I didn't and know that. He didn't
1: have he didn't have any extreme interest or knowledge on Porsches at all. And as the Ingram's, as uh, Bob Ingram, his dad tells the story, he and Cam went to the Monterey Historics in 1998 for Porsche's 50th anniversary. Oh yeah. And at that point, they had Bob had a couple of Porsches, you no know, road Porsches, over the years. And when they got out there and saw all the older cars, specifically the Speedsters, they fell in love. And at that point, they were hooked. To the extent that Cam changed the whole direction of his life, he went and started working for free, sweeping floors at a Porsche restoration shop. And eventually, he was able to gain enough confidence that they gave him real work to do, and he immersed himself in it. And as you say, he started Road scholars who, I guess it was two years ago, won Best of of Class at Pebble Beach.
0: Yeah, they restored a car for one of the Porsche family members. For the
1: Porsche family. They restored one of the earliest Gamun Coupes. Yep. So in a very brief period of time, he went from not knowing anything to being truly quite expert in the mark. And the same can be said for his dad. And their collection is spectacular. Oh, yeah. I was lucky enough to work with Randy Leffingwell, who was the one who really brought me in on the project, Randy's the author, the amount of interest. And, you know, people use the word passion all the time, but in their case, it's really true. Mm -hmm. It was such a pleasure to work with them. And any time Cam would mention a car to his dad, their eyes would light up. Mm -hmm. You know, their their speech would get faster. The, the, The enthusiasm was extraordinary. And you'd think they had just... Seen or purchased their first car. Yeah, I guess you could come back to that family fifty years from now. It'll be the exact same thing. It's a joy to see that.
0: Yeah, hopefully you can introduce me to them, and uh, I can have them on the show. They'd be great guests, I think, for cars. Yeah.
1: Oh, they'd be they'd be wonderful. They'd yeah. be very, very wonderful. They're the loveliest people to work with.
0: Now, here's a fun question for you, Michael. If, mm-hmm. you, if you were a car, what kind of car would you be, and why? <laughs>
1: You're going to hate me for this, but I'd, I'd have to be a bicycle.
0: I kind of thought you'd say that.
1: <laughs> the simplicity of it, the the relationships are the same, mm-hmm. because the concepts are the same. But the simplicity and the elegance of a bicycle is just un- unmatched. And yes, there are wonderfully elegant cars, but the, the level of... Um, complication or involvement to get there is much more significant and it's beyond what my brain can comprehend
0: <laughs>
1: remember all I can do is wash a car and take a picture
0: oh, that's right you told us that <laughs>
1: <laughs> but a bicycle I can take it apart and I can understand every piece and what it does and it's my complete understanding of what goes on on that bike really makes me appreciate them more
0: well, it's a, a great and unique answer, and I appreciate that. And, I'm Sorry, and, I didn't
1: mean to sidestep your question. That's but, okay.
0: Uh, no, no problem at all. In fact, and I'll we'll let the the listeners know later in the show, but we will be posting links up to um, uh, Michael's site so that you can get your hands on this new book, because I've seen it. I saw it when I was down at Pebble Beach. I've got to get a copy myself. It's fantastic. So we'll make sure that we show those uh, or talk about those links a little later in the show. But right now... We're up to the last lap, and this is where I fire off a series of questions, and you give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received?
1: Hmm, the best advice would be, if you can't get that car, there'll be another one.
0: (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Good, good answer. There'll be another RS Carrera. don't you worry. I keep, I keep telling myself. Yeah, I've, I've got some of those in my life too. I I understand. I've got to look
1: forward to something, Mark. Yeah,
0: we all do. We all do. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success?
1: I would say the constant analyzing and reviewing of what I do. Hmm. I'm never satisfied. And when I go back and look at what I've done, just before we finish a project, I've gone back and look at it countless times to make sure it's as good as I think it can be, because you never want to have regret. And in my world, when you produce a book, it's going to be around a lot longer than I will.
0: A long time.
1: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You don't want to look at that book and say, geez, I should have done this and I should have done that. Right. So... Living with regrets is about the worst thing you can do.
0: Do you have a resource that you could share with our listeners that you're really fond of? Perhaps a website that you go to frequently?
1: In the automotive world, I tend to go to uh, MMR, Mm, which is Peter's site. Yep, It's Peter Barassa's site. Mm. Peter has a wonderful site. There's also a number of museum sites that I go to.
0: Can you share a couple of those?
1: The Mullen Museum site, the Simeon Museum site.
0: Michael, would you share a book that you recently read that you really enjoyed?
1: Well, I guess it shouldn't be Portia Unexpected.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll make sure that we do list that yeah. one, but how about something different?
1: Because I read that book, Mark, about 14 times. <laughs> I'm
0: sure. You probably looked at it more than that.
1: The one book that stands out in my mind is a book that's just so wonderful, and it is by Gabriel Voisin. And it's part of a three book series that he did on his as his autobiography. It's called "My One Thousand and One Cars," and this is Voisin's autobiography, and we did a book for the Mullen Museum on Voisin, and I needed to read up as much as I could, and even though I'm not writing a book, I still need to be knowledgeable enough to ask questions of the my collaborators. I read the book, and first of all, it's beautifully presented just a wonderful, wonderful design, and it is designed in such a way that it encourages you to read the book, and the font that was used and the layout of the pages seem to really carry the voice of the author. Now, the author, Gabriel Voisin, is quite a character. He was an, auto, uh, an aeronautical engineer who, after World War One, said, Well, oh, there's not much need for airplanes anymore and got into making cars. <laughs> but he brought all of that sensibility of an aeronautical engineer to the road. And, but what makes the story a little more charming, if you will, was he spent more time talking about the loves of his life than his cars. Hmm. And he very, you know, he'll kind of like offhandedly talk about you know, some major thing that he designed on automobiles that are there today, but then you go on for the next four pages talking about the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. <laughs> now, what's, what's charming about this is at that point in the book, she's the 15th most beautiful woman he's ever seen, and there'll be 15 more after that. Yes. So it's just a very, very interesting insight of a person who's very, very complicated, yet his cars embody who he was. And it was just a great, great, great enjoyable experience. I'm glad you asked me the question because I'd like people to read that book. It's wonderful.
0: Well, I'll remind our listeners that you can find links to all these great resources at carsyeah.com slash Michael Furman. All right, Michael, we're up to the checkered flag. This last <laughs> This last question can be a real doozy for some people. If you could only have one collector car in your garage and it's something you can't sell to buy a bunch of other cars with, And money's no object. I'm going to buy you whatever you want today. What would that car be and why?
1: Bentley Continental R-Type.
0: Ooh, okay. And why? What is it about that car?
1: I mentioned earlier about the beauty of a bicycle and being so elegant and simple. Mm -hmm. The R-Type is like that.
0: Yes, they are. And,
1: oh my goodness, they're beautiful. I can remember only a few years ago that they were similar in price to buying a new Bentley. And I would kiddingly tell my friends, I wouldn't buy a new Bentley. I'd buy the Art type Yeah. But if you pulled up in the R-Type Continental, they'd say, there's a man of taste.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: So, And everything about that car is just wonderful. I've never driven one, and I don't know that I ever will because the dream may be better. Yes. Maybe <laughs> may be better than the reality, but I'd be happy to uh, just look at it.
0: Have you ever photographed one?
1: A number of them.
0: number of them, wonderful. A
1: number of them, yes.
0: Well, Michael, you've taken us on a great ride, and I've really enjoyed your stories. It's so special to have you on Cars, yeah. Would you give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset?
1: Have fun with what you're doing. Very Especially important. in the car world. Yeah. There's no reason not to have fun with this. So if you're showing cars, if you're restoring your own car enjoy it. I mean, be thankful that you're able to do it. And if you have a great car, share it with everybody.
0: Yes, that's really key. I just attended a Concord this past weekend at the LeMay Museum and so wonderful for people to bring their vehicles out. Some of the guests there brought multiple cars, which you can just think about the logistics and and the challenges with that. And it's so nice when people do that. Well, I want to remind our listeners again, you can find everything we've discussed here today on Michael Furman's show notes page at carsyad.com. Just type Michael into the search bar, and his show notes page will pop right up. Michael, could you also tell us how can our listeners learn more about you and your photography and get their hands on all of your spectacular books?
1: Well, we have... Two uh, websites. The first is michaelferman.com, and uh, we tried to make it complicated, but that's the best we could come up with. <laughs> and that is my site as a photographer. It'll take you through some of the projects that we've done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It also links over to our book publishing site, which is coachbuiltpress.com. Great. On there, you can actually see inside the books, and you can order them if you like. You can even go on Amazon and order the books as well. Mm-hmm. If you check back on our site, you can see what's coming up next. And we do have books coming up for the following year, and hopefully many years but, uh, you know, into the future.
0: Sure. Well, I'll remind the listeners that these books make fantastic gifts for those hard-to-buy-for car fanatics and enthusiasts in your life. Uh, they're just there's something that, these, that will be treasured forever. I have, as I said, many of Michael's books in my collection. A lot of them I have sitting out because I love to go back to them and look at them all the time. So uh, make sure you check that out. Michael's last name is F-U-R-M-A-N. Michael, I want to thank you again for being so generous with your time today. Oh,
1: you're very welcome, Mark. What a pleasure.
0: Oh, thank you. And for sharing your experiences with our listeners and being so inspirational. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road.